Mealtime inspiration. It's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The story had begun in a seemingly different age, in the years of Eisenhower. On October 4, 1957, the Soviet Union had successfully launched the satellite Sputnik, prompting worldwide worry that the communist empire would win the space race. A new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. One of the great scientific feats of the age. In the Senate, Lyndon Johnson of Texas ranked the Sputnik News with the great inflection points in world history. Johnson said that Rome had controlled the world with roads and the British with ships. Would Russia now rule the globe by conquering the heavens? On the 50th anniversary of the Sputnik launch, John Noble Wilford of the New York Times wrote, The beep, beep, beep of Sputnik was heard round the world. It was the sound of wonder and foreboding. Nothing would ever be quite the same again in geopolitics and science and technology, in everyday life and the capacity of the human species. The Soviet Union had launched the first artificial satellite, a new moon, on October 4, 1957. Climbing out of the terrestrial gravity well, rising above the atmosphere and into orbit, Sputnik crossed the threshold into a new dimension of human experience. People could now see their kind as spacefarers. The exploration of space will go ahead, whether we join in it or not. And it is one of the great adventures of all time. And no nation which expects to be the leader of other nations, can expect to stay behind in this race for space. I'm John Meacham, and this is It Was Said, Season 2, Episode 2, We Choose to Go to the Moon. Into this moment came John F. Kennedy, the 1960 Democratic presidential nominee who brilliantly cast the 1950s as an era of stasis. In my judgment, this is a race between the comfortable, the contented, and those who are concerned and wish to move forward. If you are happy now in the, what we're now doing in the United States and in the world around us, if you're satisfied, Mr. Nixon's your man. If you share my view that it's time the United States started moving again, then I ask your help. 
As his special counsel and speechwriter Theodore Sorensen recalled, John Kennedy had borne down hard on the space gap in the 1960 campaign. To him, it symbolized the nation's lack of initiative and vitality under Republican rule. He was convinced that Americans did not yet fully grasp the worldwide political and psychological impact of the space race. Sorensen added that during the transition in 1960-61, JFK's team cautioned that the United States could not win the race to put a man in space. Others expressed concern that a Soviet space monopoly would bring new military dangers and disadvantages to the West. Jack Kennedy ran for president on the idea that Ike was old and tired and we needed something fresh and new. So he had to show that he was dynamic. And fortunately, he was young and good looking and he was dynamic, but he needed some issues and he needed some new frontiers. And what better than space? This is the historian Evan Thomas. And even better, we were behind the Russians. So there was a huge desire in the United States to catch up. We'd been beaten in Sputnik in 1957. The Russians launched the first satellite. Uh, This was terrifying to a lot of Americans. And then JFK comes along, and we're still behind because the Russians put up a cosmonaut, Yuri Gargarin, in 1961. They get a man in space before we do. And this is a source of huge concern, and we got to show that we can do it. The Earth looked a delicate blue floating in a black sky. So said the first man in space after his fabulous journey of 108 minutes, Major Yuri Gagarin, a 27-year-old Soviet Air Force officer whose name will live in history. And so Kennedy, in his brilliant way, sees a possibility to make Americans feel better about themselves, which is political, but it's also a very good thing. And it's going to kill two birds with one stone. We are going to show America as the essential nation that can do things, and we're going to beat the Russians. And so, boldly, Kennedy set a new goal, one he articulated in addresses to Congress in 1961. I believe, Kennedy said, that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. Interestingly, he gave this promise twice. In April of 1961, in a speech to Congress, he promised to go to the moon in 10 years, and nobody noticed. In the Gallup poll, 58% said that was a bad idea. They were against it because it was going to be too expensive. But then he gave the speech a second time. And this time, he had his great speechwriter, Sorensen, working on it, and he gave it the Kennedy Touch, and he gave a thrilling speech. Kennedy's fullest statement came in Texas the next fall, in Houston, on the campus of Rice University at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, September 12, 1962. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. The speech is a model of learned exhortation. 
It framed the race to the heavens as a sequential chapter in humankind's long journey, linking the work of the present with the best of the past. A landing on the moon might seem futuristic, and it was. But Kennedy, a student of history and of poetry, understood that exhortation was more effective if it cast a mission in epic terms. He began lightly. I appreciate uh, your president having made me an honorary visiting professor, and I will assure you that my first lecture will be uh, very brief. What followed was appropriate for a university audience, for the president's words were rooted in the story of human progress. No man can fully grasp how far and how fast we have come. But condense, if you will, the 50,000 years of man's recorded history in a time span of about a half a century. Stated in these terms, we know very little about the first 40 years, except at the end of them, advanced man had learned to use the skins of animals to cover them. Then about 10 years ago, under this standard, man emerged from his caves to construct other kinds of shelter. Only five years ago, man learned to write and use a cart with wheels. Christianity began less than two years ago. The printing press came this year. And then less than two months ago, during this whole 50 year span of human history, the steam engine provided a new source of power. Newton explored the meaning of gravity. Last month, electric lights and telephones and automobiles and airplanes became available. Only last week did we develop penicillin and television and nuclear power. And now if America's new spacecraft succeeds in reaching Venus, we will have literally reached the stars before midnight tonight. This is a breathtaking pace, and such a pace cannot help but create new ills as it dispels old. New ignorance, new problems, new dangers. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs and hardships as well as high reward. President Kennedy's speech, the moonshot speech, is considered one of his very best speeches. There are a number of people who are behind this speech, and the final editor is John F. Kennedy himself. He was a wordsmith. There's no question about it. He knew best how he could sound. This is the historian Timothy Naftali, author of a forthcoming biography of John F. Kennedy. John Kennedy in a private setting could be cryptic, Delphic, he didn't complete his sentences, but as an order, John Kennedy understood he couldn't speak that way. He had taken lessons to improve his ability to speak. He understood meter. And so on his speech drafts, he would put where he should pause. And the Rice speech is a beautiful example of John Kennedy as an order. It is extraordinarily Kennedy-esque, full of declarative sentences, full of high hopes, full of aspirations, in a sense, grasping for our better selves. As a rhetorical matter, the Kennedy who stood at Rice on this Wednesday was speaking to his age, but from the perspective 
of the ages. Beneath what the New York Times described as a broiling sun, he knew that his audience, mostly proud Texans, which is kind of redundant, appreciated warm words about their own courage and foresight. Kennedy is very well aware that he is actually campaigning. Sorensen doesn't mention Texas at all. He doesn't mention Houston. Kennedy adds references to Houston, to Texas, to the toughness of Texans, basically connecting this argument that Americans are bold to Texans are bold. And it goes over great with his audience. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who move forward, and so will space. He connected this moment with the deepest of American myths. William Bradford, speaking in 1630 of the founding of the Plymouth Bay Colony, said that all great and honorable actions are accompanied with great difficulties, and both must be enterprised and overcome with answerable courage. If this capsule history of our progress teaches us anything, it is that man in his quest for knowledge and progress is determined and cannot be deterred. Those who came before us made certain that this country rode the first waves of the Industrial Revolution, the first waves of modern invention, and the first wave of nuclear power. And this generation does not intend to founder in the backwash of the coming age of space. We mean to be a part of it. We mean to lead it. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast i'm lauren sherman the writer behind puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet 
and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. For the eyes of the world... Now look into space, to the moon, and to the planets beyond. And we have vowed that we shall not see it governed by a hostile flag of conquest, but by a banner of freedom and peace. We have vowed that we shall not see space filled with weapons of mass destruction, but with instruments of knowledge and understanding. The stop at Rice in Houston was part of a several-day tour of space-related installations. A few days before, the president had visited Huntsville, Alabama, where Werner von Braun, the German scientist, had shown JFK a model of the Saturn C-5 rocket, remarking, This is the vehicle which is designed to fulfill your promise to put a man on the moon by the end of this decade. By God, we'll do it. The mission was presented as a noble one. But context was all. Kennedy was speaking at an hour of Cold War, of a conflict he had described in his inaugural address as a long twilight struggle. So he wants to set the tone for the U.S. challenge to the Soviet manned space program and do it in a way that Americans are going to respond to, which is that we Americans don't like to be second. We want to be first. The next few weeks would bring the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Kennedy knew that Democrats were not always seen as sufficiently strong on national defense. Kennedy spoke of his vision for space, therefore, as both a military and a moral undertaking. We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all people. For space science, like nuclear science and all technology, has no conscience of its own. Whether it will become a force for good or ill depends on man. And only if the United States occupies a position of preeminence can we help decide whether this new ocean will be a sea of peace or a new terrifying theater of war. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. And its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? It is for these reasons that I regard the decision last year 
The shift our efforts in space from low to high gear as among the most important decisions that will be made during my incumbency in the office of the presidency. He had added the line about Rice playing Texas to the draft prepared by Ted Sorensen. A skilled speechmaker, the president knew that words were addressed not only to the largest of audiences, but that they needed to work in the particular audience at hand. The question of money was crucial, too. He basically wants to build a stronger constituency for the civilian space program. Because one thing that members of Congress do is they listen to anger out in the hustings, out there. And he wants American commitment to the space program to be much more vocal. As the New York Times wrote on the day Kennedy spoke at Rice, the president's speech was largely devoted to a justification of the billions of dollars already spent and the further billions to be expended before the United States puts a man on the moon. To be sure, all this costs us all a good deal of money. This year's space budget is three times what it was in January 1961, and it is greater than the space budget of the previous eight years combined. For we have given this program a high national priority. Even though I realize that this is, in some measure, an act of faith and vision, for we do not now know what benefits await us. But if I were to say, my fellow citizens, that we shall send to the moon 240,000 miles away from the control station in Houston, a giant rocket more than 300 feet tall, the length of this football field, made of new metal alloys, some of which have not yet been invented, capable of standing heat and stresses, several times more than have ever been experienced, fitted together with a precision better than the finest watch, carrying all the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food, and survival, on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body, and then return it safely to Earth, re-entering the atmosphere at speeds of over 25,000 miles per hour, causing heat about half that on the temperature of the sun, almost as hot as it is here today, and do all this, and do all this, and do it right, and do it first, before this dictate is out, then we must be bold. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Vice President Johnson, who accompanied the president, was characteristically blunt, telling reporters, I'm going to see that Houston gets its fair share of the space budget. The Houston Chronicle's huge headline read, President predicts space center to boom industrial southwest. The very fact that Kennedy was speaking in Houston to a crowd of 40,000 people underscored the politics of the moment. 
The race to the moon meant investment in Texas, and the audience may well have been as moved by the president's prosaic talk of money as it was by his poetic evocations of conquest and of exploration. But that is what great speeches can do, appeal both to the heart and to the mind, to the conscience and to the wallet, to the elevated and to the mundane. Rice alumnus Paul Burka, who was there, recalled that the speech speaks to the way Americans viewed the future. It is a great speech, one that encapsulates all of recorded history and seeks to set it in the history of our own time. Unlike today's politicians, Kennedy spoke to our best impulses as a nation, not our worst. Many years ago, the great British explorer George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked why did he want to climb it? He said, because it is there. Well, space is there. And we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there. And new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Thank you. Seven years later, the words that had echoed through the stadium at Rice would come true. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Man's dream and a nation's pledge have now been fulfilled. The lunar age has begun. And with it, to mankind's march outward into that endless sky. The date's now indelible. It's going to be remembered as long as man survives. July 20th, 1969, the day man reached and walked on the moon. By that time, President Kennedy would have been dead for nearly six years, felled by a gunman in Dallas. But the president's legacy, like his words in the Texas heat of September 1962, lived and live on. On the next episode of It Was Said, Season 2, Theodore Roosevelt outlines the vital role and responsibility of the ordinary citizen in a republic. For Roosevelt understood that the average citizen must be a good citizen if our republics are to succeed. Thank you for listening to It Was Said, Season 2 a creation and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio in association with the History Channel. Executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13. Written and narrated by me, John Meacham. Production led by Margot Gray. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination, research, support, and consultation by Lloyd Lockridge, Bill Schultz, Sean Cherry, and Bob Tabador. Marketing, PR, sales, operations, and business affairs, led by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Bill Schultz, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. 
Creative consultation by Eli Lehrer and Jesse Katz of the History Channel. Our theme song is I Can Almost See You by Hammock. Our closing credits theme song is Light by Michael Kiwanuka. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. We're miles apart, but safe in dreams. You're running far. Beyond the dark, we'll always be one of the Fall on your knees to find a love. Your life to me, my only son. You'll always shine for me. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last.